Google Compute Engine is the public cloud built by Google. It provides infrastructure and platform-as-a-service capabilities that rival Amazon Web Services. Today's guest, Joe Bita, was there from the beginning of Google Compute Engine. He was also one of the early engineers on the Kubernetes project. Google's internal systems have made it easy for employees to spin up compute resources for a long time, but it was not a simple task to just make this internal cloud consumable by the public. They couldn't just flip a switch and make it a public cloud. Not to mention the fact that they were going head-to-head with Amazon Web Services, so they had to take certain strategic decisions that uh, I was very eager to ask Joe about. How do you compete with AWS? How do you build a competing service? In order for a cloud provider to be successful, it needs to offer the things that Joe describes as important to the modern infrastructure, which is self-healing, it's self-managing infrastructure, it can run microservices, probably has some facilities for containers, and we get into all of this. It was a real treat having Joe on the show, so I hope you enjoy this episode too. Joe Bita is an entrepreneur in residence at Excel Partners, and he worked for many years at Google, where he helped to build Kubernetes. Joe, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to have you. So you were part of the team that started Google Compute Engine, which is Google's cloud platform. So I kind of want to start talking about that. Um so Amazon started their cloud business because they realized that they had some idle compute resources and they could lease those resources out to people. Was the same true with Google? Well, I th- you know, Google had already, uh, when we started GCE, Google already had Google App Engine in the market, which was, you know, definitely um, a, a, uh, a little bit early for its time, I think, at that point. Um, and it's come a long way since then. But there was a general idea that we wanted to... Uh, somehow monetize some of Google's infrastructure. Uh, And so there was a sort of vague OKR in Google speak, sort of, you know, uh, objective key result type thing. There was a vague sort of company OKR of being able to monetize that. And with that in mind, a group of us started an infrastructure cloud office up here in Seattle um, under Brian Brashad, uh, who was the the site lead of the the Google Seattle office at the time. And... um, and, you know, we didn't necessarily, Google doesn't have a lot of extra resources, uh, but there was this idea that Google has a lot of expertise. And so, you know, they, they'd sort of build the, the cloud product and, the, um, and build out the resources as, as necessary. Mm-hmm. So the, are you saying that the server utilization was pretty high at Google? It wasn't like you, had, you just had a bunch of spare compute lying around? Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, there's always, you know, there's always some spare compute lying around, you know, uh, everywhere, you know, because not all uh, uh, there's like the diurnal cycle and, and such that, that you're working within. But for the longest time, there was a little bit of a feeling within Google that if there was a free machine, you'd be better off building software and higher order services than doing something like just running that machine out. Uh, uh, directly, and so there was actually a lot of resistance to to doing straight uh, virtual machine type cloud uh, inside of Google for those reasons. Mm. I see. Um, just because the margins on those higher level services are better, I guess. Yeah, well, that was the assumption at the time. I think you know, as we've seen the the market develop, I think there's definitely 
a, a much more nuanced view in terms of what the margins and the opportunities and the interlocking complementary businesses are here. So, but at the time, the, the sort of quick take was, you know, if we have a free machine, let's build Gmail for it, or you know, or let's expand some other type of service versus just running out the hardware, which was assumed to be lower margin. Yeah, and so when you started to build out GCE, were you thinking that you would have to build a superset of the services that Amazon offered to compete, or did you just figure, you know, this is such a greenfield market, maybe it's not exactly commodity, we don't necessarily have to build a superset, maybe we can build a disjoint set of services. Uh, how were you thinking about that? Well, I mean, we definitely didn't set out to copy everything in AWS verbatim, but it was pretty clear that there were a set of services that you needed just to, you know, play at the big boy table in this world. Um, and my thinking out the gate was that, you know, App Engine was a great service, but there were definitely places where, where folks hit the wall with App Engine. And we wanted something that was complementary and was a good escape valve. Um, and so um, I've always thought that... that uh, as you build out more pieces of this platform, they end up reinforcing each other, even if you don't use those pieces. So um, at the time, the thinking was, you know, having GCE in your back pocket makes App Engine a stronger product, even if folks aren't actually running and building VMs, because they know if they need to, they can actually go ahead and do that. And so with that in mind, we really wanted to pick the the core set of infrastructure services that we knew were going to be were going to be necessary to provide that sort of escape valve, you know, build what you want, building block type of type of world. And so the first thing we started with was um, Google Cloud Storage. Um, and the initial uh, uh, product out the gate, we, we really thought that uh, being compatible with all of the clients for S3 was going to be really critical there. Um, the, the thinking is that, you know, pretty much any interesting compute problem really centers around data. And then on the on the VM side, being API compatible, we we didn't think that that was as critical, uh, and we also wanted to find ways to let Google's unique value shine through. So we wanted to be you know concept compatible when where possible and where it made sense, but we also wanted to be able to do things like uh, show off Google's global network, which is still something that that uh, uh, creates problems for folks at Amazon when they have to stitch together. Uh, applications across regions, whereas with Google, uh, because they have their own backhaul between various data centers around the world, we we're able to do some really interesting things in terms of connecting those regions in a way that's that's not available on other clouds. Mm. So, so you know, I was really trying to find the right mix between uh, familiarity and uh, and letting letting some of the the Google goodness shine through. Yeah, well, my sense is that the Google goodness is really starting to shine. Uh, more recently because of the TensorFlow stuff and the Kubernetes stuff because these are things that Google has been has been um, working on for so long, just building up domain expertise in cluster management with Borg and machine learning um, uh, workloads in terms of disbelief and TensorFlow more recently. Um so it, in order to work up to that point where now Google can build these higher level services that that uh, offer the Google type of infrastructure, the Google type of services that are externalized, when you were building those more core infrastructure products like the, the Google Cloud Storage that was similar to S3, were there certain lessons that took Google a while to learn? Because like, Google has all, obviously had this you know this private uh, this incredible private infrastructure for a really long time 
Are there lessons that you had to learn by serving public customers that you would not have realized, like certain things that just become greater complexity when you're serving public customers? I mean, there, yeah, there's definitely, and you know, and and you know, we'll, we'll get to it, but you know, that's was some of the early thinking around Kubernetes was that the, we can use Google's experiences as a guide, but there's always going to be differences when you look outside of Google. I mean, Google has so many. Uh, interesting problems and interesting opportunities and and honestly interesting sort of restrictions in terms of of the way things work the the biggest thing uh, I, I think and and it took us a long time to to get GCE into the right place but Google always assumes that any hardware can fail and uh, the model from the get-go has really been about building software systems that make up for hardware failures um, and this applies both in terms of single machines uh, coming and going, but also in terms of whole data centers or whole whole regions, uh, you know, coming and going offline. And so, so much of of Google's assumption here is that things will fail. That Google will actually depend on the software system to be able to recover from that failure. Uh, and, and I'll give you a couple of examples. So the first one is is inside of Google. There's uh, Chubby, which is a a lock server, uh, uh, more similar to externally to something like like Zookeeper or Etcd. And uh, these things are, you know, when when you're talking about cap theorems, these things are consistent above all else uh, at the cost of availability. And so they tend to be pretty pretty reliable when you're talking about one of these instances running within a single data center. But when you're running an instance of something like Zookeeper, Etcd, or Chubby uh, across data centers, it's just a matter of time before the thing becomes unavailable. You'll end up with a network split. And so to keep everybody honest, every once in a while, Google just turns it off. Uh, just to, to, to sort of simulate and make sure that any sort of failure, they force it so that everybody has to deal with it and they have to stay honest about it. And that similar type of view was really taken with respect to data center maintenance. Uh, Google would take uh, entire data centers down at a time and leave it to the software and the software teams to move things around. Uh, and this works well when you're building, you know, replicated storage and systems and your applications are ready to deal with that. Uh, it especially works well with something that's mostly read-only like search. Uh, but it was a real challenge for cloud. Um, moving a VM from one, from one data center to another uh, is really, really hard without any sort of disruption to the user. Uh, and so the early, 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 early sort of alpha versions of GCE had maintenance windows where we would say, sorry, during this time, your VM's going to actually disappear and you're just going to have to move all your workload to a different region or a different data center or a different zone in, the, in a region uh, to deal with it. And that was obviously very, very, very painful uh, for users. And so over a lot of time, the, the, the way that Google ran data centers was more friendly um, to be able to, to deal with this stuff so that a whole data center didn't go down. But there was still this idea that machines come and go and Google was always upgrading kernels. And that was one of the reasons why we invested so much in VM migration, being able to move a VM from one machine to another transparently uh, w without the user necessarily figuring it out. Um, and so a lot of that was was to, to provide a better experience to users in terms of uptime, but uh, but the other reason was to so that Google continue with its model of of being able to you know upgrade the kernel on on their machines every so often. Mm. Now we can um, eventually get back to discussing the Google public cloud stuff and how this intersects with the next 
part of what I want to talk about, but um, you you wrote this article a while ago about what you see as the modern production stack for a company. I read this on your blog, and I think this is particularly relevant because you helped build this cloud at Google Compute Engine that seeks to serve this type of production stack to users. So this this detailed blog post that you wrote about, you know, you include things. Um, you know, container container management pieces and other things. I think you wrote this about a year ago. Yeah, it's has been any- a while. It's probably a little outdated now. <laughs> right, and 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 so that's that's where I want to start. Like, what has anything worth remarking on changed in that last year? Oh gosh, I think you know we're we're starting to see the the lines gel in terms of what the different pieces are that folks are are putting together. Um, I still, you know, and there's there's obviously new new companies and new projects that are coming into the marketplace. There's, um, gosh, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation was started after this happened. Um, there's other interesting projects which I think help to solidify, you know, different layers or components of the modern stack. And you know, I'm thinking in specific specifically things like the Open Tracing Initiative, which I think just the other day was accepted as an incubator project in the CNCF, um, is a great example of a, of a bunch of companies coming together to essentially, you know, or companies and projects to agree on language and semantics about how things work so that, you know, there's no longer this, you know, apples to oranges comparison at every layer of the stack. So we're starting to see you know, the, the the stratification and agreed upon in terms of what the layers are. But there's still a huge amount of difference in terms of overlap between different systems and companies and, and projects. So it's mm. it's a it's a very confusing space for customers. Certainly. And the qualities that you enumerated that are falling under the umbrella of this modern production stack and these are qualities that are enabled by products like Kubernetes or uh or I should say projects, uh, or Zipkin, or um, <clears throat> or Prometheus. These are qualities like self-healing, self-managing, supports microservices, efficient at resource management, debuggable. So as a cloud provider, which of these aspects, which of these qualities of the modern production stack become particularly difficult to support like or do they all go hand in hand like if you if you if you're building a cloud that supports microservices as well does that automatically mean that you're support you're solving for self-healing and resource management or are, are there any of these high level um uh units of or qualities that you enumerated about the modern production stack that are particularly hard to build as a cloud provider i i think all this stuff has to go hand in hand um from the perspective of the cloud provider, um, man, you know, I have such a such a narrow view because so much of my experience is with Google, and 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 Google fundamentally views these things as API driven and and very dynamic, and and some of the qualities of of the way that Google's built its cloud really show this dynamism in, in ways that that other clouds don't. Um, a great example is Google uh, Compute Engine supports custom VM sizes. Um, so you can actually pick a VM saying, I want this much CPU and this much RAM. And because there's a dynamic scheduler, um, Borg and Omega, behind that that actually schedules those VMs, they can go ahead and support that. So I think in some ways Google's really set up to to deal with the increased sort of dynamism and flexibility that, that comes with this model. Um, 
but you know a lot of other clouds and a lot of a lot of other ways that people approach it is that they just view the clouds as as ways to buy you know cycles bytes and packets right um and and sort of lowest common denominator type of stuff and then build the the higher order systems on top of it and so i think there's there's a natural tension there in terms of people building interesting systems on top of raw infrastructure versus the the cloud providers playing a part in terms of of supporting those higher order interesting systems um similar thing with with you know any sort of ISP internet provider. They don't want to be a dumb pipe, right? They want to add value. Well, I think the clouds don't want to just be dumb hardware. They want to find ways to add value. Uh, and so there's there's always a little bit of a tension there. Hmm. So when you are discussing the components of this modern stack, you talk about stuff like, you know, a modern production stack, like any company has their production host operating system. There's like Ubuntu or CoreOS or Red Hat, whatever they're using. And then you talk about the tools that they use to bootstrap the system. This is what gets different machines working together as productive members of a cluster. And then you start talking about the container pieces, like container runtime or container orchestration system. What when we're talking when we talk about containers, like I think that might be a big differentiator between whatever you define as modern and whatever was the previous generation. This heavy use, this focus on containers. What has taken place in that arch- that architectural shift. What are the different components that uh, a typical modern production stack has to support containers? What are those different components? Well, I I think um, so. First of all, this this whole sort of modern stack um, works well with containers, but it doesn't absolutely require it. I mean, Netflix is the really the poster child of how you can do sort of modern you know, very dynamic infrastructure on, on a cloud natively without a container in sight. I mean, obviously they're, they're using containers now and they're looking at, at it in a, um, in a more expansive way. But, but originally it was all packaging and, and distributing AMIs and viewing VMs coming and going in a, in a way. I, I think containers bring a whole bunch of new uh, uh, opportunities and challenges. The first one is um, different people see different things and different advantages with containers. And, and this actually took me a while to, to wrap my head around, to be honest. Uh, inside of Google, Google built out uh, uh, the C group mechanisms in the kernel and built out Borg and built out all their container infrastructure as an effort to drive up utilization. When you're running a fleet as large as Google's, every extra percent of utilization that you can drive out of those machines turns into real money. And you can support a lot of programmer salaries by, by chipping away a percent here and a percent there. Whereas, you know, you know, if you rewind the clock three or four years when, when Docker was hitting the scene, um, most of the excitement around Docker at that time was not about utilization. I mean, and there were obviously people who were very excited about that. But I think the real, the real excitement there was about um, this consistency of packaging an environment, being able to actually recreate an environment in a lightweight way across all sorts of different uh, places, whether it be your laptop or the cloud or you know, one cloud or another cloud or on-prem or what have you. And so um, I think from the utilization point of view, what happens is that means that you have to have 
automatic system scheduler is actually deciding where stuff runs. And as you actually dynamically place and scale things, now all of a sudden that creates a whole bunch of other problems because what used to be very static configuration is now very dynamic configuration. Something that used to change, you know, once a month, once every three months now is changing on, on a on a hourly or or minute by minute basis. And that fundamental shift from manual process to automatic process sort of creates a huge cascade, right? You, you have to up your game in terms of the way you do logging. You have to up your game in terms of the way you do name resolution or discovery. You have to up your game with the name that you, you know, the way you do tracing, uh, authentication. So many different things really become uh, more difficult as you move to this more dynamic model. I, you know, they were always difficult, but we were able to sort of spread the difficult, difficulty out by sort of human processes and spreadsheets or what have you. Um, on the packaging side, I think that uh, it creates um, a lot of opportunities to start doing things like microservices. Once it's easy to actually, actually package up and deploy stuff, now all of a sudden you can actually package up and deploy a lot more things. And that's an exciting thing because microservices are in my mind, more about scaling development teams more than necessarily scaling uh, actual software products. Uh, it, it lets you have smaller teams operating independently uh, and our, our increased efficiency of being able to run things in production means that, that we can actually support more teams running more things with the same uh, operations resources. Yeah, there have been a number of people who have come on the show and said that exact thing. Um, I'm curious... I'm talking about microservices, by the way, the the, the team advantage. Um, but so, so I'm curious about, you know, as you're working at Google, as you were working at Google, you saw containers playing a crucial role. But then when you look, when you probably when you looked out at other company architectures and you saw that they weren't using containers as aggressively, um, and then you saw the rise of Docker and Docker sort of making containers easier to understand, uh, easier to, you know, ha- that, that network effect that kind of started to pervade the software community. Did that, did that surprise you? Like, when, were, you, were you thinking that, like, okay, we're only able to, to work with containers at such a granular and detailed level because we are Google and we have this level of expertise? Um, you know, did, did did it surprise you when you saw that rise of Docker? I think um, there were definitely things that that the Docker folks did that um, were you know just would not have occurred to folks at Google with the way that Google used containers. Um, pretty much everything, every product that you build at, at Google is a is a static binary that get that gets gets essentially tarred up and then distributed. And the idea of an image doesn't really exist with respect to, to Google and Borg. It's really about, you know, let's create a cheroot dynamically and, and, and you know, deploy static binaries. Uh, and, uh, and Google's figured out a good way to do this. And you, and you see interesting things like, you know, Golang uh, uh, creates static binaries or mostly static binaries by default. And that's really the Google heritage sort of coming through. Um, whereas, um, you know, how do you build a static binary for a Ruby app, right? It just, you know, doesn't really, really compute. And so the the idea of moving from static binaries to static environments, which is really what a, a Docker image or a container image really is, um, 
and then reusing the package management that you find in the average Linux distribution is a really interesting model that I, I don't think would have would have happened inside of Google. So I got to I got to be honest that that you know I was surprised and sort of delighted to see you know that melding of the container technology with uh, a set of concepts that were much more friendly to the world outside of Google. In terms of like you know other things that that were surprising about that, um, it was pretty obvious to to you know the folks at Google that Docker was bringing something really critical to the to the party in terms of of that container image and and melding that. But you know immediately we we knew that the hard and the interesting part was really going to be at the cluster in terms of how do you actually deal with scheduling and finding and managing and debugging these things at scale. And so that's that's really begat the, the you know, that was the inception of, of Kubernetes as we looked at Docker and said, okay, some really interesting problems being solved here, but, you know, this is this is just solving sort of the node agent stuff. We need to we need to actually figure out a way to bring all the the good learnings that Google has around the cluster to the to the wider world. So, Kubernetes would not have been inspired without Docker, or were you think, or was were you was Google Cloud was the Google Cloud team thinking about how can we bring Google cluster management to the people? Um, and then Docker happened to come around, and you had the aha moment there. What what what, what was the point of inspiration? Yeah, I think it was more the second. Um, mm-hmm. There was. Uh, so first of all, Google Cloud runs on top of Google's infrastructure. So when you run a VM with GCE, um, you're you're running a job in Borg, uh, and so it's it, it, GCE uses um, KVM. KVM, you know, has a as a you know a lot of stuff happening in user mode. That user mode is running inside a container in a C group, um, like every other job at Google. And, and that was one of the, the sort of success criteria for us to be able to, to get GCE up and running was to actually make it integrate with the rest of Google's other internal systems. But, you know, when you add that together and then you have virtual networks and you have uh, a network block device and you have the API layer, there's a relatively fat adaptation layer between what customers see with GCE and what internal Google developers see. And so I had a, a, a new manager at one point who came from elsewhere inside of Google to, to come work on cloud, and he brought up a GCE VM, and his reaction was like, okay, so now what? <laughs> you know, and it, because it just felt so primitive compared to the experience for the average developer inside of Google. Mm-hmm. And so as Google got more and more serious about cloud, there was this large effort to uh, eventually and, and start building the, the right forces and the right um, systems so that the Google developer and the external developer were actually using the same thing as much as possible and sort of shrink that adaptation layer down between what external users see. And so we always saw VMs as a, as a sort of stopgap towards something that was going to be more Google native and more similar to what, what we have inside of Borg. Uh, and... Um, and so we were trying to wrap our head around that problem of like how do we how do we get the rest of the world to actually start thinking about things in the way that Google thinks about it in a way that's not going to totally freak them out and and delivers incremental value along the way. And and so as we were starting to have those conversations, uh, you know, Docker hit the scene. I, I believe I saw one of the first you know presentations from Solomon about Docker at GlueCon back in the day, and uh, you know it was pretty clear from from there that. Um, 
that you know Docker was solving a, a critical piece of the puzzle early on in terms of making this stuff accessible to the average developer. I think Craig McClucky, when he came on the show, was talking about how now Google is trying to get people, you know, if you're standing up a new service at Google, perhaps you run it on Kubernetes that is agnostic of Borg, or you run it on Kubernetes on top of Borg, or what is the model for getting dog fooding to happen? You know, honestly, I'm, I'm no longer at Google, so, you know, my, my knowledge is a sort of snapshot okay. of like a, a year and a half ago. I, I do know that there are, you know, efforts and, and um, you know, a lot of the folks that when I were there were on the Borg team are now working in the open on Kubernetes. So, you know, it's 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 obvious to me that, that <laughs> you know, Google's putting their, their, you know, their good developers where they're where you know on the kubernetes stuff so so it's it's obviously a priority in terms of what the experience and what the motivators inside the companies are i, I imagine that it, they, they've only uh uh continued to actually go down that path but i don't have any hard data there yeah quite a migration to make <laughs> <laughs> well none of these things and you know and it took amazon a long time to actually get most of their products on top of ec2 um you know these um, these things don't happen overnight, and it's it's uh, it's it's about creating the right, um, you know, uh, the right incentives and the right forcing functions inside the company to make these these long migrations happen. So now that you know Kubernetes has been built with the Docker model of containers, you know Docker really helped popularize containers. And how much of so now there's this talk of you know the the Docker potential Docker fork stuff, or it, it seems to be more about the idea that containers are so crucial to what we do. Um, maybe, you know, there's a, a variety of applications to for for the idea of a container, and maybe we don't want to be tied to the Docker's definition of a container. Maybe that definition should be relegated for certain applications, and we want uh, more boring container types for other applications. How much is the software industry tied to Docker as the container type of choice today? I think that there's um, sort of the marketing and identity perception part of it, um, which those are um, Docker and containers are are definitely synonymous in a lot of folks' heads. I, I hopefully, you know, I think it's got like the the best logo of all time <laughs> for software products. You know, it, it, maybe it all it, products is like I think it rivals Coca Cola for like logo, how good the logo is. I you know I I, I you know it's definitely it's it's iconic and it definitely <laughs> you know gets gets what they're what they're trying to get at across. And, you know I I you know I would worry that it's um, you know different logos speak to different demographics. Um, mm. And so you know open source project type of logo, it's awesome. I think you know when you're when you're trying to to you know crack you know boring banks in the midwest it may, right. may not play as well right I don't know. when you're selling to state farm you, you maybe don't want the whale with the containers on it um but you know that's i mean that's I, I think that's just part of part of docker's personality and that's great um i i do i think from a perception point of view they're definitely synonymous i i think folks are starting to 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 separate these out and understand sort of the different parts that go into to a container engine or a container world um, and, 
you know, specifically, and I think some of these projects and some of the, the, the feelings that people have is that these things don't necessarily need to be bundled together as tightly as, as they are with the, the Docker platform. Um, it seems silly to me that um, when I download a Docker image, it runs on a root agent, right? And, you know, when I want to untar that stuff and actually start processing, it all runs as root uh, versus having a more sort of Unix-like exploded set of, of utilities. Uh, the interoperability around the Docker image format is is something that um, I, I think that there's a there's a lot of desire out there in the market to actually see uh, more providers in terms of being able to manage and manipulate these images to be able to host and download and 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 you know munch them server side. Um, so there's there's um, you know obviously a push within the OCI and there's a bunch of drama around that. But I think you know the 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 you know. This stuff will march forward and we'll see more, I don't want to say standardization, but we'll see at least more interoperability being the focus moving forward as as lots of folks start building and innovating in this space beyond uh, beyond just Docker. Now, not to fall for the drama, I'm, I'm doing my best to not fall for the drama, particularly as a journalist, um, but like when docker bundled in this support for docker swarm which is their orchestration layer when they bundled that into the software i guess the, one of the, the more the more recent version of docker you know architecturally we look at that as a software engineering it seems kind of strange as an open source building block to have that bundled in um do you think did do you think Docker knew that there would be this kind of backlash? And do you think they just saw it as inevitable that the container standards are going to kind of diverge and maybe they just want to put their their uh, uh, their foot down in terms of like what Docker is? Like Docker is this is this way that you do containers where we take care of everything in in the Docker world and, and we're okay with things forking? Or um, I don't know, what, what do you think was the perspective when they did that? Well, you know, it's it's always tough to speculate on sort of what other people were thinking and planning mm-hmm. here. Um, you know, you can always sort of play armchair quarterback of like, what would I do in that position? Uh, I mean, I think there is confusion and I think there's confusion on all sorts of uh, uh, parties in terms of the difference between Docker, the company and Docker, the open source project um, and Docker, the community, the wider community around Docker. And um and there aren't really clear lines there in my mind, and I think that's where a lot of this confusion happens. From Docker the company and Docker the platform, which goes beyond just the engine, um, you know, the the Solomon's genius, and and I think he continues it with stuff like Swarm, is to really, really focus on that user experience and really boiling it down as much as possible. And so doing something like building Swarm in is a no-brainer from the, the user experience point of view. In terms of building a multi-company you know, or sort of you know, a wide uh, community in terms of the health of the project as being a building block. And, you know, I, I think that these things sometimes maybe work at, at you know, um, at cross purposes. And so, you know, it's, it's not an easy line and it's not an easy path to actually walk to try and balance those two things. And so uh, 
you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether they knew that the reaction would be what it is, but I, I, I have no doubt that you know they were really trying to focus on the you know servicing their users the best that they could, um, and and maybe weren't weighing the the community and the project as much as the product. Yeah, I like the admiration you're giving for uh, Solomon there because I think when you think about like successful software projects, I think about Ruby on Rails and how successful that has been despite all of the uh, vitriol it gets for being, oh, Rails is unscalable or blah, 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 blah. Rails pervasiveness is due to its ease of use and the fact that you're just in Rails and it's like easy to use and that's seems to be where Docker is going, except for distributed systems. Yeah, and I think there's there's a ton of projects that fall in, into this mold where where the developer focused ease of use has really been put front and center, and um, and it can make for some very very successful projects. I, I think that you'll also see uh, tensions when you have other projects that are in the same space that are more focused on operability, are are, are more focused on on um, servicing other needs beyond just sort of this getting started experience. I think there's a there's a danger, and I've seen this, you know, throughout my career at at you know in this world, but also previously I was you know building APIs and client systems at Microsoft. Um, and there's this tension between building something that looks great on a slide in a presentation that gives you a great first five minute experience versus building something that actually stands the test of time and continues to deliver a a predictable reasonable experience over the next five months or five years and and balancing those things is a really really tricky thing because you can do all sorts of voodoo to actually make that five minute experience really great but that voodoo ends up coming and biting you in the butt later when when you're trying to do more complex or or more scalable things are there any historical analogs that we can look to that are somewhat similar to what is going on right now in the Docker ecosystem? Like, for example, the the battle for Hadoop market share, maybe between uh, Cloudera and Hortonworks, that kind of comes to mind. Is that is that analogous at all, or is that like trying to form fit a square peg in a round hole? I mean, there's, there's probably some analogies there. I, I just, you know, every time... Every time we go through one of these things, it's, there's always, you know, key fundamental differences. Mm-hmm. So I think there's definitely lessons to be learned. Um, you know, and there's always this tension between vertical integration versus a wide community uh, and um, and walking that line there. And, you know, we've seen that play over in the industry again and again and again. I think, you know, Windows versus Linux is a great example of, of you know, um, sort of a, a, you know, single vendor sort of ecosystem versus something that's that's much wider um but i you know but i i think those all seem kind of forced to me i'm not sure that that we can draw any real conclusions from that mm-hmm. now what what do you think is going to happen what would need to happen in order for kubernetes to work with container technology other than docker oh it's already happening i mean kubernetes works with rocket there's um one of the things that's sort of falling out of the Kubernetes world is um, taking things that early on within Kubernetes were honestly just a mess, like the way that networks got configured with Kubernetes, and finding ways to break those out into some clean modular interfaces. So on the networking side, we have CNI, the Common Networking Interface, um, and there's similar efforts underway for both the uh, the runtime interface and the storage interface. And so there's... Um, and these are relatively simple, straightforward interfaces, which um, uh, uh, 
apply both in terms of Kubernetes talking to a whole set of technologies, but then also it's been fascinating to watch things like CNI being taken up by other similar projects. Like I, I believe there's there's support or, or folks are working on support for CNI with Mesos. Um, so that's great to see. And um, and so that effort's underway. And so there's there's support for Rocket. And then there's, you know, obviously this, um, oh, God, it got renamed. It was the it was the um, OCID got CRIO. CRIO, right? And so this common runtime interface, you know, based on OCI, right? Um, and OCI itself is, is you know, is, is, is chugging along. And I believe the, if it hasn't happened already, the, the image format V1 stuff is happening. So that's, that's exciting to see that, see that move forward. Hmm. Uh, so you mentioned Mesos there. So as you were building Kubernetes, were there inspirations that you were taking from Mesos at the time? And how do you think... Uh, I just did a, a great show about um, schedulers at, at Netflix, and they use Mesos. Um, I, you know, I think they were building out their scheduling architecture a little bit pre Kubernetes, and so. The, but they had, you know, they have a variety of workloads, and um, they needed to build their own custom scheduler, which I guess was easy to do on top of Mesos. Um, how do you think the the use cases are going to diverge for how people are using Kubernetes versus Mesos? Well, you know, it's, I mean, this is, this is, you know, if, if we, if we, you know, rewind to the beginning of our conversation about sort of the different layers of the modern production stack, I think this is one of those places where things just don't line up as neatly as we'd want them to. I mean, you can look at, mm-hmm. at Swarm or, or Kubernetes or Mesos or Nomad or, or what have you and say, oh, these are all orchestrators, right? And we'll mm-hmm. all put them in a bucket there. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, it's, it's not nearly that clean. Right. And, um, and so, the scheduling part of Kubernetes is actually just a corner, and it's probably, at least initially, it was not something that we were spending a ton of time on. The 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 thing that we wanted to get right out of the gate was how do people describe and package up and manage workloads at scale in a distributed system? We wanted to have the right primitives, and then... Um, and then you know recognizing that we could build out the the other parts of it as we went right so um, things like getting the idea of pods and labels and controllers down was really a critical piece that that we wanted to focus on out of the gate uh, and then have the scheduler be be something that you know there's there's room for innovation there so the scheduler inside of inside of uh, Kubernetes is pluggable and so in some ways Kubernetes is more analogous to a to a Mesos framework than it is to Mesos itself. Now, Kubernetes comes with a scheduler built in, but you know there are folks who are you know extending and replacing that scheduler, and you can run multiple schedulers you know behind Kubernetes if you want. Um, so I think you know, and and when I looked at at um, Mesos out the gate when we were looking at it, I, I think the one thing that that we really wanted to do is that we wanted to engender a very open and wide community and. And when we were starting Kubernetes, we looked at the amount of community engagement that Docker had, and that was definitely something that that influenced some of our choices. And so going out with a relatively new code base based on Go um, so that we could integrate and 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 assimilate sort of other thinking from outside of Google as we were building that stuff out ended up being, I think, really important for building the the, uh, the community from, from the get-go. Whereas at, at, the, at the time, you know, Mesos is, you know, a, a fairly hefty C++ code base. It was pretty well established. 
um, just the, the community has a, has a very different feel to it than I think um, what something like, like Kubernetes has. And um, the amount of consistency between the frameworks, I think, is, is probably something that lets you b- run a bunch of different things on top of a Mesos cluster, but it makes it difficult to actually connect the dots between those things. Uh, having one, a workload running on one framework talking to a workload running on another framework is, is, you know, has to go through some sort of service mesh or discovery thing that, that somebody has to apply consistently that that framework may or may not support. So there's a lot of mm. elbow grease necessary to be able to sort of really, you know, connect the dots between different frameworks. So, so I looked at it, and I'm like, I wasn't quite sure how much value that sort of multi-framework stuff really brought to the table versus, versus getting the concepts right out the gate in terms mm. of what users see. Okay, so the types of frameworks you're, you're referring to, this is kind of like the la- how the language of the project translates to the way that the project gets run and gets talked about. Like I, I hear people talk about Mesos in terms of frameworks, like it's a, it's a distributed system for distributed systems, and the distributed systems that you will run against it are things like Spark, uh, things like Flink, um, these these things that we th- can can. Uh, ideate as specific distributed systems that we need uh, throughout our company, whereas uh, Kubernetes thinks, my impression is, thinks of things on a little more granular level with just pods, and um, and that, that abstraction, I guess, is a little more of a primitive. Um, yeah, I, I guess one way to think about it is that end users... Um, when end users look at a Mesos cluster, they don't think about Mesos. They think about Aurora or Marathon or what have you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's their interface. That's their view of that world. Um, whereas, you know, when Kubernetes users look at Kubernetes, they generally see Kubernetes. Um, and so in some ways, like Kubernetes and Mesos are, are kind of apples and oranges, where I think Kubernetes is in some ways more analogous from a user's point of view to, to, to you know, one of, the, one of the common frameworks running on top of, on top of Mesos. I think, you know, one of the things that we've seen happen, and this is shifting gears a little bit, one of the things that we've seen happen at Google and and I, I think is going to be happening more and more is this idea of operations specialization. We're going to have, you know, one set of teams, or you can outsource it using something like Google Container Engine or ECS or what have you, but you're going to have, you know, one set of people run your cluster for you, and then you're going to have another set of folks running applications on top of that cluster. And uh, if we're successful here, if, if this transition happens, the, that ratio of cluster administrators to cluster users will end up being, you know, one to 100 or one to 1,000 or what have you. And, um, and so we really wanted to make sure that we got the right abstraction so that we could enable that one to 1,000 ratio. Mm. So we really wanted to build a product that, that was, you know, good for cluster administrators, but also good for cluster users. Mm. Now, what what kinds of stuff are you looking at? So you, you're an entrepreneur in residence. You're, I guess, war, either are you working on a company right now or are you thinking about what company you want to start? What are the kinds of things that you're thinking about? Well, first of all, um, I'll, I'll ask you, Jeff, and I don't want to embarrass you. Do, do you know what an EIR is? Um, my understanding is it's like somebody that uh, a venture capital firm basically says, okay, you are interested in starting a company. You don't know what you want to start yet. Why don't you come and join us as an entrepreneur in residence? You look at ideas that come in the door and help us make decisions about investments. And in the meantime, you're thinking about what company you want to start yourself. 
Yeah, no, that, that's that's probably one of the better answers I've gotten as I've asked people this. Um, no, that's that's great. Um, you know, and it obviously means different things to different firms. Um, but the the first thing to recognize and and is that the the whole VC world is built on, especially for for seed and A stage type stuff. It's built on reputation and relationships, and so really an EIR is just a way to start building those relationships. Uh, mm. and, and and you know so that. I get to know the firm, the firm gets to know me, and then um, I get to, you know, discuss ideas and understand how they're viewing the world and sort of do a little bit of a mind meld there so that when it comes time to start a company and and get financing, it's going to go a heck of a lot smoother because everybody is a known quantity at that point. Right. And so, yeah, so I'm in the middle of that process. Uh, I I love working with the Excel folks. Um, You know, I have a, a couple of ideas that I've been working through and, and talking about. And I think, you know, I've been been doing it for almost a year now. So I think uh, it's probably time for me to 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 put something together and pull the right founders together. But nothing nothing quite ready to announce yet. So OK, um, but but I, I feel like my time is uh, I'm starting to get the itch to actually go off and do something. Yeah, well, you know, I, I can I, I have no idea what you're interested in working on. But like I imagine that, you know, seeing how Google Cloud is evolving and looking at these I like I look at Google Cloud and I see these three really big differentiating pillars that I think are going to be some some backbones of some incredible companies and and those three pillars I see are the Kubernetes and TensorFlow and then the Dataflow or Apache Beam stuff and I feel like the adoption for these is just really going to ramp up uh, like crazy in the next few years. Do you, do you think you think that's right? Like I, I feel like these are these are types of technologies that we're not previously built on a cloud provider yeah i think um you know kubernetes i think was probably one of the 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 first out the gate here um you know google's obviously in an interesting position and and doing something that has a heavy open source component is um was actually pretty controversial inside the company um getting kubernetes out there i don't know if that came through in the in the discussions that you had with with brennan and craig previously Um, no it actually didn't it was um you know, uh, Google was, you know, always tries to be... Because it's the secret sauce. <laughs> yeah, Google tries to, to, to be a good open source citizen, but there's always this tension about giving too much away and, and tipping folks off. And so, you know, um, and and, and you, you, you'd look at things like the, the you know, GFS paper, the MapReduce paper, and by the time Google published those papers, you know, <laughs> they were already on, like, version two or three of that stuff, right? So... Um, but it created this really wacky thing where, you know, somebody would, would take that paper and they'd implement their own version of it. And then they'd take it in interesting directions that Google had never seen, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there's all sorts of fascinating things happening, you know, within the Hadoop ecosystem. And uh, it's frustrating, at least it was for me. Um, I did some 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 early, you know, MapReduce stuff on top of GCE. We are exploring that of like, okay, how can we sort of merge together Hadoop on top of Google's native MapReduce. And, and the problem is that the, the models had diverged just enough that it was almost impossible to, to merge those things back in. And so you, you end up with, you know, crazy stuff like, you know, Google Cloud Data Store uses the industry standard HBase API. Um, whereas HBase was actually based on the big table paper that actually actually underlies, <laughs> you know, so it's this weird, this weird type of thing that happens out of that. And so one of the, the theories coming out of, of um, com- going into sort of starting Kubernetes, and, and, and this was a little bit controversial early on inside the company, was that, um, you know, 
there's enough ex-Googlers out there that, you know, the ideas behind Borg are, are, are well understood and you had projects like Mesos going, somebody's going to be able to, to get this stuff to gel and um, it might as well be Google in a way that is friendly with the way that Google thinks about this stuff so that it's easier to keep this stuff concept compatible and actually keep the internal systems and the external systems, you know, aligned and or identical. And um, that combined with, you know, a genuine effort to build a community from the get-go and and really make it um, a community-driven project ended up working extremely well for Kubernetes. And I, I think we're seeing that pattern uh, adopted by other efforts outside of, outside of Google. And I think TensorFlow and, and Dataproc, um, gRPC are, are all other examples of, of taking some of those ideas and running with them. Indeed. So uh, what, I mean, this is a kind of opening question, but what are the, what were the hardest parts of building Google Compute Engine? What were just, in retrospect, the hardest things that, that come to, or, or supporting that modern production stack that you talk about? Well, I mean, th- those are two different things. I, I think with, <laughs> so so I have this phrase I'm trying to make s- stick. It's um, it's punching trees, right? So, you know, punching trees in Minecraft means you're starting from scratch. Um, so much of getting GCE up and running was really punching trees. I mean, Google didn't have and didn't really need a lot of virtual networking. So we had to build out a virtual networking system. Google didn't have and didn't need a network block store because everything was built on GFS and Colossus, which was more similar to an object store. Um, so we had to build out a, net, uh, uh, a network block store. Google didn't use a lot of virtualization and, and really was very unsure around virtualization because there was such an investment in C groups and containers. And, um, you know, there were a few places where, where you know, Google was running, you know, virtualization for for very specialized uses but it was definitely seen as a special case so we had to had to build out a virtualization team and really figure out how to run something like kvm in google's data centers google didn't have a lot of api infrastructure so we had to uh, work with some early teams there and really push them google didn't have command line you know so we had to build out all these things from scratch and so that was um in some ways it was really about adapting um, Google's advanced infrastructure to stuff that was familiar to everybody outside of Google. And so it felt a little backwards, but it was, you know, I think uh, incredibly necessary to actually have a compelling product in the marketplace. Yeah, I do find it interesting that Google does not seem to have fallen victim at all to the innovator's dilemma where you have this, uh, you know, this cash cow in the advertising business that is making tons of money and in in years past you know other businesses might have fallen victim to just you know run the business but um google seems to have been willing to punch the trees as you said uh to to build that new revenue stream um so i think it's a a pretty good commentary on the culture well, I think some of it, honestly, is is benign neglect. Um, <laughs> I mean, so so Google's culture is really, uh, you know, I may regret saying it, it's it's really one of passive aggressiveness. I mean, you know, every every culture has their has their flaws, and so if you're doing something at Google and people don't like what you're doing, they just kind of ignore you and hope you'll go away. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, <laughs> so there's, I mean, so it's easy to get enough rope to sort of hang yourself at Google, and 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 um, and I think that's part of the the honestly, I think it's part of the innovation. Uh, uh, sort of culture at Google. And so things like 20% time, you know, you can argue about how real that is anymore. But um, but a lot of that is just giving people freedom to experiment and do stuff that everybody else thinks is crazy. Hmm. And so early on, 
you know, there were a lot of folks who thought that we were absolutely nuts for, for building out GCE and that it was, uh, you know, a dead end project. But, um, you know, by the time it, it was clear that it was going to be the, the, you know, right direction and, and, and a good place for the company to invest, you know, we had already had something well along the way that they could actually take and, and you know, put more resources behind and, and get out the door. So um, I don't know how much of it is sort of, you know, central planning or how much of it is, like I said, just, you know, uh, an aspect of, of Google's passive aggressive culture. Well, uh, what's, it, what's it been like since leaving Google? Well, you know, leaving any big company is a, you know, it takes time to deprogram. And you know, move from saying you know yeah. we, when you're talking about the yeah, company I, to actually I, I them. I only spent I only spent eight months at Amazon, and I I still had that I felt like I had been branded um, you know like a cattle like uh, and so it is hard to get out of that mindset. Yeah, and so I I think you know I've just been giving myself space and time to be able to sort of you know start thinking about the wide world instead of actually trying to think about everything through the through the Google lens. I mean, I was there for like ten years, so you know it's it's kind of like. <laughs> It's kind of like a bad breakup, right? Where, where right. they say like for every, for, it takes a month for every year of the relationship to get over it. I don't know. Oh. So, <laughs> so there's something like that. And I, and I think, um, you know, you definitely get some clarity when you're outside of that bubble. Um, but you also, um, it, it colors your thinking. You can't help it but color your thinking. And you, ha- you have to see everything through through that lens. And so yeah. I've been actively trying to to, to you know, talk to people who are are not inside the Google world to really (laughs) meld, you know, all the stuff that I learned there uh, with, you know, what are the requirements and the realities of of the world outside of Google. Great. All right, Joe. Well, uh, thanks for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. And um, as soon as you decide what, what project you're working on, you're welcome to come back on the show if you want to talk about it. All right. Well, that's great. I, you know, uh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono.